The best way to learn a language? Immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day. But if that's not in the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way. And that's with Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts and help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's designed by real people for real conversations, and their tips and tools are approachable, accessible, rooted in real-life situations, and delivered with conversation-based teaching, so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription at babbel.com slash bluewire. That's 60% off at babbel.com slash bluewire, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash bluewire. Rules and restrictions apply. Hi, my name is Pat Jr., and I am the host of the Red Black Green Baseball Podcast. You are listening to the third episode, and the featured guest is Roger Garcia, the great-grandson of Seaver Garcia, one of the greatest African-Cuban shortstops in the history of professional baseball. He had an illustrious career, playing professionally in the New York Leagues and other top professional baseball leagues across the world. He was one of the candidates considered to break Major League Baseball's cutter line, although he was deemed unfit after telling Branch Rickey that he'd kill a man if he spat on him for being black. Me and Roger talked about a list of topics, meaning we're rubbing around his relationship with the game of baseball and how it intersects with his identity as an Afro-Cuban and his family history. This was an episode that I am very proud to be a part of, as Roger is the first Afro-Latino individual to be featured on the Red Black Green Baseball Podcast. Thank you for listening. So I grew up in Nashville, Tennessee, born and raised. Um, so born into a baseball family. Um, like, as you can see on my Twitter, uh, last year, I kind of went viral just for sharing a, a baseball card uh, of my grandfather and who my grandfather was and uh, how important really he was to the game. But, you know, he was like an unsung hero, but uh, Silvio Garcia. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'm born into family that played baseball all the way through. Like, I mean, as you can see, I mean, as you know, he could have been the very first. He could have broken the color barrier in baseball. Right. You know, for the for the whole diaspora. So, but you know, uh, unfortunately, just kept it too real, I guess. But I mean, I, I really, I'm actually more proud of that. You know, you that's know, realizing that. I mean, it is what it is. I mean, that's just it's signs of the times. Exactly, the times were the times at that point in time. He, you know, at the end of the day, he wasn't going to take anything like that from anybody. He'd be abused just to go here and do something that he loved like that. And I respect, I respect him for that. I'm glad that 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 blood runs through my veins, you know? Mm. And, and so. And that's the other side of the spectrum too, that people really don't see with black baseball players is um, as much as they turn on their cheek, they also fought back and prideful and, and had demands and, and demanded things and took those things when they were necessary. So, and, and did what they had to. So, um, with your his with your family history of the game and what your great grandfather personified, it is big because um with with Afro Cuban history it is big as far as um the diaspora, especially in the West or especially in the West um for, for those who are Afro Latino, uh, Black American or or um etc. Afro Caribbean is um Afro Cuban culture is prominent in the um. Oh, it's, it's in, in the fight for freedom, I should say. 
Absolutely. All the way through and through. I mean, and it's, it's always been like that. And like, like, so it's really a complicated relationship that my grandfather had with Cuba in itself as it started to turn. Um, you know, I just, I, I heard the story. So like, if you can, you can Google, you can Google them like the, uh, the SABR, they do a lot of baseball research and mm-hmm. they have a really nicely done article on him. And like, you know, he's in that article, it says he's considered to be one of the greatest shortstops in Cuban baseball history, like of all time. And, you know, that's a very, very deep history, some very high quality players um, that have been that have come through that uh, that that country. Um, And my grandfather, like in all of his, you know, folklore, like with him supposed to be the first baseball player to to break that color barrier. But the reason that he wasn't was because he stood his ground, said he wasn't going to take being spat on or, or being called racial slurs to just to go play the sport that he loved. And even though he didn't make it into MLB, he still thrived and was a professional and was able to provide for his family and build things in Cuba. Like he's got um, over in Buena Vista, Cuba. I went for the first time back in 2017 to, to meet a lot of my family members that, I knew of, but never spoken to before, never, never met, never saw. And it was a a fantastic experience. And I actually got to see the house that he built over in Buena Vista, Cuba. And like, it's some great migration type stuff. Like, oh, absolutely. Oh, absolutely. I I mean, how, how was that? Just, um, just taking through the experience, just, um, man, so where everybody around you has skin and hair like you in, in, in that sense. And just, it was very, it was a very unique experience. Like it really was like going back into a time capsule. Um, like you, you see all the cars, like from like the 1950s and 60s over there, like and the people, clothes and everything. Oh man, the clothes, people having the guayabetas and everything all the time, just out there lounging, chilling. Like you see people just really just living life. Like people's got like barbershops inside their houses and stuff. Like they, they got to get it how they live over there. So, yeah, I mean, they really just kicking it. They really are. They really are. But I mean, it's a real laid back place. It's very different. Like, you know, going out to eat is something is an experience that <laughs> I wouldn't really prepare for because like over there in Cuba, and I guess it's just in other countries in general, they don't really like rush to get your food out like they do in America. Like they come out one dish at a time and take a, it's going to be like a two, three hour event. Going it's to experience. Like yeah, it's experience. exactly it. It's an experience over there. And I guess us in America, we're just so used to getting things in and out, in and out, quick, quick, get this. I need my stuff now. Like, we don't really sit back. It was a big adjustment for you? Experience life. Just trying to lay back. Honestly, it was was an adjustment, but it was a well-needed adjustment. Like, my cell phone didn't work while I was over there. I was over there a week. Cell phone didn't work over there. Um, TV was terrible. You know, they got they got four channels. They got a, a channel where they showed all the Olympic Cubans, and then two channels dedicated to Fidel Castro, and that's all you are. You can watch on TV. <laughs> <laughs> so you might as well be outside all day over there, you know. And that embargo doing a number on them, boy. It really, that really is. And, and you know what? Speaking of uh, Fidel Castro, a little story about the relationship that. <laughs> Fidel Castro and my great grandfather, Silvio Garcia, had. So my dad went to Cuba for the first time, like before us, like in like 2007 or something. He went, but he went without us. Wow, uh, that's but, when Cuba, that's when Fidel was still alive and stuff. Yeah, yeah, oh yeah, definitely. Um, and so when he went over there, he saw 
he, he saw the National Baseball Stadium. And so he went over there to take a tour and take a look at everything. And he was like really surprised that he didn't see anything of our grandfather, of his grandfather, of my great grandfather around there. Like there were statues of all kinds of other Cuban players and photos and pictures and records and stuff like that. But but everybody nothing, but him. nothing but Silvio Garcia. Well, the reason that is, is because back in the 50s, I believe, when Fidel Castro took power, he wanted... Fidel Castro wanted my grandfather to denounce professionalism, you know, because, you know, he's a communist, uh, communist tyrant at the time, basically taking over. And communism, professionalism is something that's not that that's not acceptable. You know, you got to do amateurism. Exactly. You're trying to do whatever you can because, you know, you got U.S. military and everybody like that breathing on his back. So you're just trying to. You whatever icons you can uh, sway the people. Exactly, and he tried to use my great grandfather as like a, a political puffet, pretty much. And, and you know, it was just wanted to remain independent, and therefore he just got erased from history like that. You exactly right. He said, "You know, I'm not. I'm. I, I can't do that. This is how I provided for my family. I was able to provide my family houses. There's basketball courts over in our neighborhood and things like that." And he said, "No, Fidel Castro and his tyrannical self at that time really like said." Oh, okay. You want to do that? So we'll erase you from the record books. No one will ever know that uh, Silvio Garcia existed, and that's what he tried to do. Although it didn't work, and he probably and, had to um has tried to get that redacted or anything like that. Or no, nah, I mean, so Fidel wouldn't he die like twenty sixteen, twenty seventeen? It was right, right, right around right. then. It was right around the end of Obama's term. Yeah, right around the end of Obama's term. So like. I, we haven't really done much because, I mean, right around then is when Trump came in and really just completely shut down travel to Cuba. Yeah, so, like it really like it was really thawing out and then it just got cold. Again. Yeah, then it just completely got cold again. And I really want to, I'm not bad, I didn't mean to cut you off. No, no, you're good. You're good. Go ahead. Um, So I want to talk to you, you know, you as Afro-Latino um, and with the lack of visibility Afro-Latinos have in the diaspora and especially, you know, it's, it's weird. Afro-Latinos have visibility in the game, but they're yeah. just called Latinos where their the blackness is, is erased. And, you know, mm-hmm. you have people say, oh, well, they don't consider themselves as black. And there's been countless times on record going back to... I know black, so, I Dominican. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I mean, we know that inside joke and we, we know the context behind the inside joke and we can do it, but people really don't understand um, just the inner working. So can you kind of delve into that as an Afro-Latino fan, you know, You've seen the big wave of Afro-Latino stars in baseball from the Caribbean and Latin America. Just just kind of sticking through everything. So, like, growing up, like, in Tennessee, so I I grew up in Middle Tennessee, Nashville, Tennessee, and so I grew up playing baseball at a sort of high level, and I played, you know, with a lot of white kids, right? Mm -hmm. And so growing up as a black person in baseball – like my dad really instilled in me, like he's like, look, I know you. We got the last name Garcia. We're Cuban and all, but I'm telling you that what they're gonna see is you, you're black. So if you really want to get far in this game, you really got to dominate. And so, like that's twice really as hard. Twice as better. Exactly. Twice as you got to work twice as hard, be twice as better, just to get half as many, uh, half as many looks. You know, and and that is something that really, really sticks out in the game because like. If you're if you're an average black guy, you're really not gonna get chosen. You really got to stand out, and and that's just that's just the the curse of, of of 
you know, of, of our skin, I guess, having to be held to that much of a high standard. Um, but seeing the new wave of what we've got going on with with the Fernando Tatis uh, coming through, like, I feel like I, I, he's, you know, he's I, I consider him Afro Latino pretty much. But like you got Luis Rober over there in uh, Chicago. I mean, like all of the all of the you know black Cuban guys. Latino. I mean, you know, they, you oh, know yeah. What Cuban dudes do. They, they don't. Oh, yeah. That. Oh yeah, they don't. No, no, no. They absolutely don't play about that. They absolutely consider themselves black. It's not. It's not like. It's not even a question. Yeah. Uh, because I mean, it's obvious. Look, yeah. look, look at me. Of course, I'm black. Yeah. But I mean, that is and that, for Cubans too. Historically, I mean, they've it's it's more um like I mean, especially what what they were doing last year with the kneeling and everything. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, they definitely embrace it. They definitely embrace it and, and definitely feel that I feel like they feel more of a responsibility to be a representative for not just the Cuban culture, but black people as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and so like that, that definitely comes through from what I see in Cuban baseball players for sure. Um, and, you know, just uh, the other Afro Latino players around too. And then like, even the, even not even the Afro Latinos like the 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 Bahamian guys like like Jazz uh, Jazz Chisel man he's such an exciting player to watch and like I love the the passion that he brings through and like the flashiness that he's got I really think he's somebody that's really gonna attract more black fans to the game definitely especially in Miami with, with Jeter at the helm you know, oh yeah we, we love Jeter so and that's gonna be big for I, I really don't know what like because you know my, my dad's family's from Miami uh and I, I spent a lot of time in Miami I really don't understand why people don't why and people in Miami don't really embrace, embrace the baseball team yeah because you know baseball I mean it's, it's full of Cubans in Miami they love baseball and, and uh, but Miami is full of black people, and absolutely. And Marlins have had a good amount of black players since they since they became a team in the late nineties. They really have. They really have. Like I, I remember all the uh, Marlins players. They I, had a I black used catcher. To, they had a black catcher. Charles Johnson. Charles Johnson. Like I, I used to, you know, the the first memory I remember of wanting to be a catcher growing up as a kid was watching Charles Johnson on on Fox. Mm-hmm. He was he had the that was back when they used to do catcher cam all the time. And I was like, man, that's the coolest thing ever. And I saw Charles Johnson, black dude, sitting there catching catch cam, the way he was controlling the game. He had a cannon for an arm. Like, man, it was just like something that just always like it just got my heart going. And I always wanted to be a catcher uh, as as a kid. So. so take me through that. Take me through, um, you know, you growing up as a catcher, um, playing against Mookie Betts. Uh, uh, favorite team growing up, what you like about the game growing up, everything like that, favorite players? Yeah, yeah. So, like, um, like as a kid, like, I think the first time I played catcher, I was, like, eight years old, like, some, like, little all-star tournament. And it's really weird, the time, the reason that they got <laughs> – the reason they are like, oh, you're such a good catcher. Like, I caught and tagged some kid, but he, like, tried to run me over. But, you know, I played football at the time, so, you know, I basically used it as a time to tackle somebody, and I put my shoulder into them, knocked them down to tag them. They are like, oh, man, you're going to be an absolutely fantastic catcher, and I got stuck as a catcher from that point on. And, and so from eight years old to, to freshman year in college, pretty much I caught. Um, but, like, man, being a catcher is, like, something that is such a, it's such a different perspective on the game. And it, it really is a, a sport where you really have to use it or a position where you absolutely have to use your brain. Like they call them the tools of ignorance. And that's because catchers are tough as hell. 
Um, that that that's you can't you got to be you got to be a certain crazy person to be a catcher. Definitely, you can, but yeah. but you're, you're throwing yourself in front of a base in front of a baseball that's moving over eighty oof, miles per hour repeatedly. Over, repeatedly, over. man, foul tips and and things like all that. Fingers. And- oh my goodness, I couldn't. Like I remember, I used to have just bruises all over. Don't let me be in a tournament. Oh my goodness, forget that. It was terrible, but so, it was awesome though. You know, I, I love catching, but the most one of the parts that I really looked forward to catching uh, growing up, and like my dad was my coach um, mm-hmm. as a as a kid, and he used to allow me to call pitches, call my own pitches as like a, at a young age, and I used to love calling pitches because you know I feel like really in control of the game. I'm mixing hitters up. I'm like as a, as a hitter, I'm thinking like, what would I hate for somebody to throw me right now? And I throw that pitch like that's how I would operate as a catcher. Mm-hmm. Um, and so like I, I really. That that's one beautiful part of the game that I don't think a lot of people can appreciate. Um, uh, other, apart from you know really understanding that game and like being a catcher. Yeah. So, um, how do you feel about the robot arms? I absolutely hate them because like I, I really think it's going to have some unintended consequences with the game. So like I was thinking of it earlier. They put this in per, into perspective. So you, you got somebody a, a pitcher who gets ahead of the count 0-2 real quick. And so you're going to want to – a lot of pitchers, some, sometimes they waste a pitch. A lot of times – sometimes they don't. But, you know, the, trying to throw a waste pitch now is really going to be a waste pitch because if you got somebody who's really got a disciplined eye, they really, in the back of their head, no, they don't have to swing even if it's, like, almost close. If it's a ball off, it's not going to get called because it's, the robo-ump's not going to call that. You know, so you really got to I, I don't know. I, I have to see how it's going to be applied. But I just I, I just think it's too much technology involved in the game at that point in time. And it's going to take away as a catcher. Like I said, my biggest thing, one of my biggest things I think is beautiful about catching is framing the ball and being able to turn up a, a pitch that supposedly is a ball into a strike by, by bringing it up or into the zone. And I, I think it's just a very artistic thing to do. And. And that part's going to be lost in the game if ro- these robo-ups are, are going to do what I think that they will do. And I really would hate that. Definitely. Um, I feel like robo-ups six way important part of the game within the game. And um, it's, it's really necessary that. I also feel like um, with human empires, that, that um, margin of error that, that they have inherently, it's, just, it's a big deal. Cause right. Because it's, it's important to the narrative. and with how with how strikes on this managed, you may have getting games where umpires are gonna crap the bed. I mean, it is what it is. It happens. I mean, but it, it really like it happens few and far between. And honestly, it's they they know who it is. I mean, the CB Buckner and Last Diaz and getting them dudes behind the plate, they're trash. So like, just don't put them behind the plate. I don't know. Oh, yeah. Like, there's yeah, there, especially in important games. Like, there's certain umpires that are like, and they grade them all the time. I see those uh, accounts on Twitter. They're going to have their own industry grades for doing it. I mean, they know. Absolutely. They know who's good. So those ones who are really good behind the plate, because I know I used to umpire myself. So, and I used to like do like little kids tournaments and I don't care what you're doing. Little kids tournaments, regular baseball, all that. It's hot out there. So being behind the plate and all that gear can get pretty taxing. So, but if those umpires are that are really that good, good at it, Man, they need to just pay them more and have those guys just be strictly behind the plate umps or something, and just just create more of them and have them train other people and bring them up to make it more 
yeah. make more people be able to call yeah. better games. Hire younger umps, maybe. Um, yeah, yeah, that's something else they need to do. Umps don't need to be 78 years old. Why do they need to be up there? Like yeah, for real. Like, 70 years old, sitting up there in the seven, three hours a day. No. 100 days a year. Like No, absolutely not. Yeah, nah, they tweaking. Yeah. So, um, you got a favorite team right now? Oh, I'm a Braves fan, man. Braves? That's that, yeah, no, Braves fan. Braves. Braves. Okay, okay. Braves. Look, I might be a Braves fan if they move here to Nashville. That's what I need in my life, man. I'm telling you, I don't know. Like, Nashville is truly a hotbed of baseball. Like, sit here and think about, like, and it's, it's fitting that they're going to call Nashville the stars because that's all we produce. You got Mookie Betts. You got Sonny Gray. You got David Price. I mean, you got stars all throughout Nashville that come out of this town that just turned into absolute stars. Tony Kemp. I mean, there's, there's all kind of Nashville like stars out here in the Middle Tennessee area that, you know, I grew up hearing about, playing against and, and things like that. And it's just like something that's. I would love to for Nashville to have a baseball team, and uh, the MLB don't know what they're missing by not having one here. So, hey, uh, I agree with you. So, uh, Braves, um, who's your favorite player growing up? Favorite player growing up was Bonds. Okay, Bonds, and then like if as a Braves fan, my favorite player as a Braves was uh, probably Fred Fred McGriff. He was my first favorite baseball player, the Crown Dog. Okay, that's what's yeah. Up. Um, just. Just take me to what was it like seeing Bonds? Because, um, you know, you're 31. You, you saw pretty much all of Bonds. So just, just kind of take me to what that was like. That's literally who I tried to emulate. So I was a left-handed hitting catcher, too. Mm-hmm. So I tried to emulate being Barry Bonds. Like, I remember. And everything. With not, well, focus. not not necessarily just trying to drop bombs. That's all. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like, I, I, that, that's what I used to go, go up there. Walk the home runs. Look, walks and home runs. Like, I tried my best not to strike out. Um, my dad will tell a story about me striking out, but I'll let him tell that one day to somebody else. I don't want to hear about that. But, <laughs> <laughs> but like, you know, seeing Barnes, like, his dominance at, at, at growing up, like, which is something that was just a true sight to behold. And, like, so it was around – I really started paying attention – to like deep, heavy, heavy watching baseball, heavy to when I was like nine or 10. Uh, so that's been like 99, 2000 years. Right. So that's right in the problem of bonds going, going crazy. Uh, well, I guess right around Sammy Sosa and the, the home run race. What? Mm-hmm. So look, you got steroids taking hold, bringing even me into watching baseball more regularly, but like, watching how he used to just intimidate pitchers. Like, I watching games with my dad, he would be like, look at this pitcher face. Like, if it was a really intense moment, like, he was like, well, look at this face. He's going he gonna to be scared watching Bonds. You could literally see the fear in pitchers' eyes facing Barry Bonds at an important part of the game because they knew they couldn't do they, – they couldn't do anything. If if you really had to pitch to that man, you it was nothing that you could do about it. There was a high, high, high chance that it was going to be going a very, very far away. And, like, I remember not just his power, like, his discipline at the plate. I think the year that he hit 72 home runs, there was a stat. I was watching a random midday baseball game. I don't know who they were playing, but I remember a stat that one of the announcers said. It was, like, maybe around June. And at that point in time, he had a crazy amount of home runs. But they said that he swung and missed on a ball three times up to that point in time in the season. And we were in like June. So three months of the season gone, and this man has swung and missed on a ball three times. That hand-eye coordination is insane. That is like laser-like focus. It's, and it's just like something that was just truly and 
in a sight to behold. And and then he could and then he could run. <laughs> he could steal the base on you too. So it, it was Barry Bonds is a, a one of a kind player that I don't know if we'll ever see another of the likes of him again. Yeah, that man is a, is an alien for real. He he really was. And before the like they say before the Royals, and I really wasn't really paying attention to this. And even if he did do, the, you know, they always can, they can never hundred percent prove it. But whatever. Um, even if he did. He still dominated, and guess what? Other players were doing it too. I mean, like the fact that he dominated that much with them. I mean, it's just it's just absurd. Like nobody should be doing that, even with steroids. Like even with him, even with him, you know. So like, so Bonds as a as one of my favorite players, absolutely. He was one of my first favorite players. Like steroids can't teach, can't can't help you do. No, they don't. They like, don't. They don't teach that at all. Like they don't just, teach that. <laughs> nah, like yeah. that's that. You need limitless people to do that. Exactly. Exactly. But um, so apart from Bonds, uh, when Bonds retired, I had to, you know, find another favorite player. But Albert Pujols, that's my other favorite player. Pujols Albert Pujols. My guy growing up. Oh, my goodness, man. Pujols was just a, like the machine, man. He really was one of the most awesome players. Like, And his dominance was something that he's like the only one that I think kind of rivaled Bonds' type of dominance. It, it was different with him, too, because he was a. It was a baseball player. It was so different. He was so different as a baseball player because he kind of played all over the all over the place when he was younger. And then oh yeah, he was, uh, even when he was the first baseman, when he got older, he was still like a great first baseman. Like he he and that's what I'm, that's what something that was really weird about Pujols' career. Like I remember he first came in, he was like a left fielder, then a right fielder, then a first base, and he played third base a little bit. But they had to find a spot for him to get that bat in the lineup, dude. I mean, yeah, it's crazy. He was just such a hitter, but he just he was he was just so skilled as a complete. He was a complete baseball. Player. He, he, he was absolutely, absolutely a complete baseball player. Like Albert Pujols was. His running skills are great. And like even like for not having like just complete like athletic speed, like not being a burner, he absolutely was a great base runner. He would he would I mean he was always in the top of the league, uh, towards the top of the league in runs and things like that every year, and that's like. It takes it takes talent getting around the base pass after you, even <laughs> if you don't hit a home run every time, you know. Definitely, and his BSRs are good, especially for first baseman. Like, oh yeah, I mean, it's it's, it's different. That that man was very different. Um, who's your favorite Afro Cuban player? Uh, favorite Afro Cuban player. So, you know, growing up, there really wasn't a lot because you know the Cuban players weren't. You know, I, you I would see Levon Hernandez, but they had to defect. Uh, to to get over there yeah, uh, to, to play. A lot and they weren't defecting a lot at that point in time, like when I was growing up watching. So a lot of the Afro-Cuban players that I like nowadays are kind of newer. Uh, like like um, one of my favorites right now is, is Adonis Garcia. I don't know if that's because he's probably my cousin in some way or fashion being Cuban uh, and having the last name Garcia and being black, black as hell like me, but I don't know. Who knows? But like I, I really like the way that he plays him from uh over the Texas Rangers. Uh and uh Randy Rosarena, I believe he's he's Afro Cuban, I believe, isn't he? Yeah, he's cute. Yeah, that's what I thought. Uh, uh Rosarena is one of my one of my favorites. Um I I like uh is uh, I believe uh Yas- Yasmani Grandal. That's um Yeah, he's 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 cute. Yeah, so Yasmani Grandal got a funny story. Like in 07, I went to a baseball camp down at the University of Miami. And Yasmani Grandal was actually one of the players there. Uh, I think Jim Morris was the head coach of the University of Miami at the time. I don't know if he's still there. 
but he was like the you know doing the whole camp and <laughs> you know did i ever tell you about the time i almost met a rock hmm. oh okay well here's a funny story so that baseball camp we went to was the day after christmas it was a christmas baseball camp i went with uh, me and one of my good friends adam perry we were both playing at McGavick, trying to get seen and, you know, just trying to, you know, go get our names out there. So I go down to Miami every other Christmas. I was like, hey, Perry, come down to Miami for me, uh, with me, and we can go to this Miami baseball camp. All right, cool. So we get there. Now, this is December 26th. I'll never forget it. I accidentally read the time on the brochure wrong. So we got there like what, an hour earlier than we were supposed to even be there. So, But at, it was like 7 in the morning. December 26th, day after Christmas, and Alex Rodriguez is on the field. Like, we roll up to the field, and Alex Rodriguez is on the field practicing, uh, you know, doing his work, putting putting the work in. You see him taking ground balls, hitting some balls off the tee, and he looks like he'd been out there for hours already. And so, you know, that shows, you know, I don't, I, you know, roids or not with A-Rod, you know, you know which obviously he didn't, but, uh, you know, his dedication to the game, it was obviously there. So, you know, he was, you can kind of see, you know, what that's what it took to get to that level. And so he he leaves the field. They're getting the field ready and everything. And so the coaches come over to some of the guys on the side. Like, all right, yeah. So first we're going to run the sixty. Well, you know, running's not never been one of my positive standpoints in 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 playing baseball. I'm not a very fast person, uh, but <laughs> I was like, oh man, dang. So I got to make sure I'm as fast as I can possibly be. Uh, so you know, I, I had a little, uh, I had a Cuban, uh, some Cuban. Uh, uh, bakery baked goods before i went to the uh before i went to the camp so you know it kind of worked its way through me so i was like you know what let me go to the bathroom real quick hmm. and so as i go to the bathroom you know apparently i was in there a minute there's only two stalls over there so there's somebody in that stall i go to the other stall whatever so it was apparently getting closer to the time and my dad was coming to look for me uh because you know they're calling names and they call my name and i wasn't out there and so I can hear him calling my name around the corner. He's like, Roger, Roger, looking for the bathroom. And the guy next to me in the stall gets out. He's washing his hands or whatever. And so I hear my dad calling around the corner, Roger. And he says, and he stops. He's like, hey, Rod, what's going on, man? And that's the guy who was in the stall right next to me. Alex Rodriguez was right there in the stall right next to me. So that's the time I almost met (laughs) A-Rod. I was in the store next to A Rod. Yeah, yeah, that's that's something that I don't I don't know if A Rod knows that he probably doesn't. You know? <laughs> probably you mean. Know. <laughs> he he's never thought about that a day in his life, but never, I tell it all never. the time. <laughs> you, gonna, you just unlock that memory for that man. Um. So, uh, just t- tell me another story. You seem like you got you got a lot of great baseball stories. Tell me another move, one more move story, maybe. Uh, so, you know, something else that my dad told me that I didn't even know about. So my dad's, my dad's father, Reynold Garcia, he actually played baseball professionally as well. Like he got signed for the Phillies with the Phillies when he was 14 and he ended up coming to America to play baseball, obviously for the Phillies and was coming up through the minor league ranks. He never made it, he made it professionally, but it kind of had like a cup of coffee. He was up there like six weeks or so, but I mean, either way, that's still pretty awesome. My great grandfather played professional, great grandfather and grandfather played professional baseball. I mean, um, one, one playing new leagues and another played in the minors. Right. Um, and 
no, actually, he was actually roommates uh, with Fergie Jenkins coming up through the minor league. So I, oh. that was that's something that I heard uh, that my dad told me. And my dad told me one time they went to they were playing against the Rangers. They they went to like a uh, a spring training game or something to go catch them play, watch his dad play and everything. And he said that he went to the locker room and they met Fergie Jenkins and Fergie Jenkins gave him like a baseball glove, but it wasn't Fergie Jenkins's glove. He like, he, he, he talked to Billy Sample. Uh, Billy Sample was there. He's like, Hey man, I need to give these kids a glove. Um, uh, let me get one of yours. And he gave him a glove. And my dad had a, a glove from Billy Sample and he, he loved that glove. Absolutely treasured it. Um, and uh, so I remember as a kid, I don't know if it's like second grade or so, um, and we used to go down by the park at the bottom of our apartments and play baseball and throw and everything. And that's the glove that he gave to me, my very first glove that he really gave to me. And my dumb ass lost it. <laughs> and he never, oh, and he always remembers that. He you ruined our story, bro. Come on, bro. I, I was, that was supposed I was to be a... That was supposed to be a family heirloom, and my, I lost it with my seven-year-old oh, self. I gotta so. bleep that out too. Look. <laughs> that's gonna be a good one. That's gonna be a good one. <laughs> oh man, that, that's a great story, bro. You lost it. You lost look, a Billy sample glove. Look, I lost a. I lost a. I lost a Billy sample glove, man. That was that was exactly on, what bro. that was you know, exactly you, what I did. I'm, I know look, your pops was sick, man. He was like, I, I never, and I didn't know how how important it was at that time, you know. He just and, a kid. man, I'm, you know, just this little seven-year-old kid. He was really, like, letting me have it. And I was just like, oh, my God, I'm sorry. I lost the glove. Oh, in Spanish and everything? No, my dad. So, my dad speaks perfect English. Like, he, okay. so, he speaks. He's bilingual. Does, uh, does, does you guys speak Spanish at home or no? So, man, I look, I used to, we used to pester him. Me and my siblings used to pester him about speaking Spanish at home. He'd do it for a week and then forget. <laughs> oh, he just, he just, he just, <laughs> but he just spoke. Feel like speaking Spanish. Yeah, yeah, he, did, he, yeah, he spoke Spanish to his mother and everything all the time. Me abuela, like she, but Bertha Garcia, man, that's a, that's a special lady right there. But yeah, he speaks Spanish to her and down in Miami. Every time we go down there and like, he can translate and everything, but he don't speak to us, but that didn't keep me from at least trying my best to learn Spanish um, because I, I used to like I had a very good Spanish teacher in high school. I really paid attention because I wanted to be able to speak to my grandmother in Spanish, even though I, I didn't grow up speaking it fluently and everything. And she used to teach me my first Spanish words. Like, of course, she like, you know, as a as a normal Cuban grandmother fashion um, or maybe it's just mine. I don't know. But the first words I learned were, were cuss words. Um, so I learned that from her. I t- stayed a summer down in Miami with her, and she taught me all the Spanish cuss words I could I could handle. My dad immediately told me you're not allowed to say those words anywhere but down in Miami <laughs> with your grandmother. So I had to unlearn those. But um, it, like being able to speak Spanish is definitely something that was. A big deal, for a you big, big, big deal for me because of my culture and, and like being able to speak. And I'm not completely bilingual, but I, I know enough to get around. Um, and it, it's really something that I really take pride in being able to really live up to that Garcia last name. Being able to speak a little bit of Spanish, you know. <laughs> right. I understand that. That's, that makes perfect sense. And thank you for that. Um, so, as 
you know, as we see guys like Minnie Minoso get put in the Hall of Fame, and, you know, for me, that was probably the most I've ever heard of the word Afro-Latino been used, right. like, ever by people. I mean, and, and you see people think it's a new concept, and, and, you, got, and you got people like you, your family's history, your lineage, and things like that. Um, What is it going forward? What, what you have to be, you have an optimistic outlook just to see how far things have turned in a short amount of Oh, time. yeah, most definitely. Like, I, I I really think that there's a buzz about the game right now. I, I think the game is really on the cusp of being able to break some new barriers and really bring in some new fans. I see, like, a, a, a very hungry young crop of black kids coming up, um, uh, from like every, that. All oh, from, from, from all over. and inspe- like, But especially the black kids. Like, so, you know, you got the Ed Howard guy who who played at on the Chicago team for uh, Little League World Series. I think he's going to be a monster. You got P. Brian Hayes now, like Tim Anderson. He's Akil one of my Badu. favorite. Akil Badu. Man, the way that he came onto the scene last year with a bomb in his first – was it his first – it was his first – I don't know if his first pitch of the first it was, it, I watched it was the it, first it pitch. Was, it was it was the first pitch of his first set. Uh, bro, he yeah. absolutely he absolutely killed it. it. Like, is he from? So where's he from? Is he from Ghana? No, his his father's Ghanaian. Ghanaian, Trinidadian. Okay, okay. So like, I grew He's up the first Ghanaian and Trinidadian player. That's awesome. That is awesome. Like, I grew up playing uh, or going to a. a church with a lot of Ghanaian people and like man people from Ghana are like they've got beautiful souls so like it's, yeah, it's awesome to see people. somebody like that yeah uh, uh succeed yeah, it's interesting too with you know the Bahamian guys what they're doing it's gonna it's gonna really be a big big influence on how they influence the Anglophone section of the Caribbean um oh yeah so it's gonna be interesting to see what with that especially with Jamaica and stuff um and then you got guys like Tristan McKenzie he's Jamaican man T-Mac um, man that that's a, that's the new T-Mac I'm finna call him I'm just I'm going ahead and claim that for him now man he is an absolute gem of a pitcher he throws gas who the Naylor brothers they're Jamaican too. oh wow I didn't know that yeah and I didn't know that, that. I know you. I don't know if you knew this, but you know, Rhoda Chapman is Jamaican. Yeah, I know he's. I didn't know he was Jamaican and Cuban. I didn't know that as yeah. well. His uh, his his paternal grandparents immigrated to uh Cuba from Jamaica. Wow, wow, yeah. man! Can you imagine? Like, I, I you remember when he first came on the scene? Like how hard it was he was crazy. throwing. Like, I mean, absolutely. Was, I've never like, seen one hundred and six on a gun in my entire life. And I'm saying, what? You, this is in like 2012. So right, this is before it was really like he was really like the. Like that's, before, that's one dude before him, the dude I remember throwing a hundred was like Billy Wagner. Like that's the, the or especially from the left hand side like that, just throwing gas like that was Billy Wagner. I remember Billy Wagner throwing absolute smoke. And Randy Johnson. Randy Johnson. But that's because uh, he was big. But yeah, that's just because he was big. But Rodas Chapman coming in throwing one hundred six. Like what is that? Oof. Yeah, like what can you do with that? Man? Yeah, I don't know. I like I'd be so like catching wise. Like so, I I still play a little bit of baseball. Like I uh I stopped playing like after like I, I got to college. I walked on uh to to a JUCO uh Fall State, um but I didn't really play much. And then I you know just kind of stopped playing for a little bit. And so I picked it up like a couple years ago. I was like ten years of not playing. I was like, let me see if I can. Uh, do a little something, play a little bit again, and I ended up making uh, going to a trial for this uh, adult woodbat tournament or adult woodbat league. And the league that I was in, I I ended up joining like the championship team. Like we ended up winning the championship that year, and I was the starting catcher the whole year. Like 
like for like a certain amount of time, like I led the league in doubles. Like it was a pretty, it was a pretty exhilarating experience. I, I like really re- recovered my love for baseball because for a little while, like I really wasn't really paying attention to baseball that much. I wasn't watching MLB much. I didn't hardly watch many of the World Series. It's around the time like the Astros and stuff, the controversy was going on and stuff. And so I, I really wasn't paying attention to it like that. But like catching like now, like I, I like I couldn't imagine catching 106. Like the fastest guy I've ever caught was a dude named Nathan Patterson. Um, and he threw like about 96 and he threw absolute smoke. And, you know, I could catch that pretty. All right. But 10 miles an hour more than that. I don't even. I can't How even do you fathom that. that? I can't. I can't. 96 is gas, too. Yeah, 96 is gas. And so 106 adding 10 more miles per hour on that. I don't even know how you even see it. <laughs> so it's yeah. something. I mean, that's how hard catching is. Can you just like just take people through how hard catching is? Because you kind of freak out just what, how bad catches are offensively and they don't understand. Just, like, oh, man. Like this, they Especially, don't like magnifying that to the major league level. Like they really don't know like what it takes to block a pitch. Like, or to, or, a, to manage a pitching staff. or or to manage a pitching staff. Oh yeah, absolutely. Because you got pitchers, man, can be, and they'll tell you too, pitchers can be some crazy dudes, man. They can be some head cases and they can sometimes be the most bulldog person, like a Roger Clemens type mentality, or sometimes they can be fragile and when one little thing knocks them off kilter. And so you as a catcher got to know who you're dealing with as a pitcher and have to, be able to help work them out of their issues sometimes if they're if they're having them because they're not always going to hit the spots. So you got to figure out which pitch is working right for him. Um, call that more often, and sometimes he's just not going. He's going to be a one pitch pitcher sometimes. Sometimes a pitcher's only got two pitches, two good pitches, and one of them ain't working that day. So you got to figure out a way as a catcher to still work with just that one pitch and try to make it work. And like man, catching is just so in depth with when it comes to the framing aspect to the blocking aspect. And then my favorite part, throwing people out. Like as a catcher, I used to just feel disrespected when somebody would try to steal on me. It's like, it really is like disrespect. When you think about it, they, they're like literally sitting there like, bro, I think you're so trash. I'm going to take this base and you can't do nothing about it. And so I used to get so hyped throwing people out. Like I it's love like that Michael Irvin thing. Don't listen yeah. to everybody in your house. And take exactly. Your Come and take and take your food off your table. Like I love Michael Irvin. I love, I love Michael Irvin, man. I'm a, he just remind me of, of our elders so much. So how we say stuff. So my dad's born in, or he was born in New York, raised in Miami, but he was raised in Miami around the time that Miami was the U. Like Miami. really the U. Oh my God, man. I can't imagine the fun he had back there. I'm jealous. But, like, dude, he he used to, like, he loves Michael Irvin, and we're Cowboys fans, too. So, of yeah, course, Michael I Irvin, I, I love Michael Irvin, man. He's one of my favorite people. He's one of my favorite yeah, people. I love his passion. I love yeah, his passion. It, it's just so, um, it, it just reminds you just of, uh, of how we were raised and just, just how loud he is and stuff. It just Oh, like, yeah. It's, it's so home. That that intensity, man. He's got yeah. just pure intensity. Yeah, and it's and, and it's like and it's it's out of love and joy. It's, it's just it's right. He don't even stuff. look. He don't even need the cocaine. It's yeah, all this. Like, it's exactly. all him. Like, <laughs> yeah, that's just, 
that's just that's just black man energy right there. Hundred percent. Mid fifties and he got money. Right, exactly. That's exactly what it is. Mid fifties got money and he's from Miami, so that's what you're gonna get, man. Miami, man. Miami dudes are just a real different breed. I'm glad to be raised by one, man. Yeah, but um, so I got one last question I want to ask you. Um, yeah, I want to ask you about um, there's been an uptick in black catchers. Um, mm-hmm. professional baseball league guys like uh, Xavier Warren with uh, the is that the guy with Cleveland, Cleveland or with the uh, with the Guardians organization? No, um, the guys with the, the guy with the Guardians is Bo Naylor. The guy Bo Naylor, that's who it was. That's is, who you're um, talking about. Xavier Warren. He's a catcher in the Brewers system. He's a switch hitter. He plays he, in, in addition to catcher. He also plays third base, shortstop, second, and first. You know. Um, I think that I hope that he sticks with being a catcher because they try to, I don't know why they try to push black people away from catcher. I mean, I guess catcher is kind of like the, it really is like the quarterback of the team. And you know how, you know, as a, it took a while. That's how I've always seen it. Okay. So like, you know, how it took a while for a lot of teams to want black quarterbacks in the NFL. And I feel like it's taken a while for, them to want that in the in the MLB more Again. often because yeah exactly uh, well yeah. we can say this for a fact that most black catchers in baseball a large majority historically um, have been Afro Latinos and yep. and that's just another inherent bias there with how they view Latinos and how they it's like they see their understanding of baseball as instinctual more so than the. And it is to an extent, but more so than them being intelligent. Than being something that's been intelligent and, and taught. And like, it absolutely it's, it's something. It's, they think it's like natural or, or na- yeah. nature. Yeah. Man, that's absolutely not. Man, baseball's a thinking man's game. And like, if I didn't have my dad to really teach me how to watch baseball, what to pay attention to with baseball, how to think baseball, you know, hitters counts and and when to when to do this, when to stay away from from throwing this pitch to a hitter, like when to not give in, when to sometimes give in and things like that. You know what I mean? If I didn't know those type of things and the the nuances of baseball um, and it wasn't taught to me, like, you know, I, I it would I wouldn't be I wouldn't know what I know about baseball and have like the in-depth knowledge of, of, of how, of it, how I do. Um, so, I mean, it absolutely is something that can be taught and something yeah. that can be replicated in other ways for sure. Definitely. And baseball is more to the diaspora and is, is big for us because um, our revolutionaries have always used it to, to rally us or to inspire mm-hmm. us in a sense. Um, and- I, I think like, so like, what do you think is the way that we could get like more, black people interested in baseball like like I mean, just we just gotta continue to do what we're doing you know we like what you're doing right now you're 100 percent right we want to right. play the game we've always wanted to play the game even with the external factors that have wanted to push out the game we we continue to persist and prevail that's true me personify that and we have a deep understanding of that and being from two different parts of diaspora we understand um the unique issues that present themselves to us um, but and and how we solve that just even by having this dialogue is right. a big step forward, and we both understand that. And just spending it on record is big. Hundred percent. It just reminds me of another question I want to ask you. Um, yeah. As a um, as an Afro Latino, um, what what the coverage of the game of Latinos, um, what's one thing you want to see improve? I would like them to have more of a voice. Man, like the base, baseball really does do a terrible job promoting their players. Like, absolute terrible job. Like, not even like just the Afro Latino players. Like, just think about it. Every little kid should know who Mike Trout is, period. 
every little kid should know who Mike Trout is. But if I went to an inner city school, they would look at me like, who the heck is Mike Trout? You know, so like I, I feel like baseball needs to do a better job of doing the groundwork of making sure that people have somebody that they can relate to. And whether that be the Afro Latino players or or the the Tim Beckhams, like like he should be or I'm sorry, not Tim Beckham, but uh, Tim Anderson, like he should be somebody who is like really like a a like the black voice of baseball and like the black face of baseball. Because like, I, I think he didn't even start playing baseball till his like junior or senior year of high school, bro. Yeah, like he played till he was in 11th grade. In 11th grade, man, that's insane. He didn't start playing baseball until 11th grade and is playing in the MLB at a high level. He's only like 26 or 27 right now. Yeah, so he's literally been in two years. He's like, what? That don't even make sense. And he's absolutely just dominating. Like he's one of the best hitters in baseball. Like I love watching him hit. Love his attitude to like the way that he throws the bat down after he hits a big home run like that's the thing that baseball needs to promote more and they need to 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 embrace that stuff like they finally like they, they've been fighting against themselves for the last 10 years let the kids play let the kids play golly stop all this police mumbo jumbo and all that stuff like man pitchers all the time get hyped when they have a big strikeout so so what if he if a hitter hits a bomb off of you Bro, he just hit a ball 300-plus feet. Yeah, I would get excited, too. He hit a bomb off you. And Let he's going to fail the other 70% of the time. Exactly. Let him flip his damn bat because nine times out of ten, you're going to freaking – or sorry, seven times out of ten, you're probably going to win and get him out. You know? Yeah. So it doesn't it doesn't happen, like, very often. Now, hitters getting, like – they can be – hitters know when they're doing too much after they hit a, hit a home run. When you really pick a home run take – 30 minutes coming around and play eh, as a catcher. I might have to police that a little bit. And you might get a little bit of chin music close to you, brush you off the plate a little bit and be like, Hey bro, stop doing that BS. But like, you know, it's, but you let, I mean, yeah. but at the same time, I feel like, um, it should, honestly, pictures should, should stop throwing at people. And we'll be, ready that's true. That's, that, that's, that's true. That's, I mean, that's like, big, if you, go, if you want to be ready to throw a ball, as somebody that's going ninety miles per hour, you should be ready. You got to be ready to fight. Period. Like, I mean, like, like, you know, that's a safer thing to do, honestly. You know, you know who uh, one of the funniest plays or sequences I've seen in recent memory was uh, Amir Garrett for the Reds when oh, he yeah, literally ran off players. of the mound. Oh my god, that was hilarious. That was that was the blackest was thing I've ever seen a pitcher do. And then uh, <laughs> Yasiel Puig jumped in. He jumped right on in there, man. Yasiel Puig, man, that's a that's a big dude. I bet if he would have played, he could have put him in football and he would have thrived too, man. man. That dude. Imagine him, awesome. at the, imagine him at the mic. Oh my! Like, oh my God! As a mic linebacker, oh my goodness, man, where are you going? Nowhere, exactly. So <laughs> he, he locked in the middle up. Man. Absolutely, like or something. Absolutely. All right, man. Uh, thank you for coming on. I appreciate you having on, Roger. So it's a great conversation. Um, hey, man. We can uh, open some people's eyes and open some minds. Absolutely, man. Keep doing what you're doing, man. This is going to be a, a, a huge thing. Uh, keep pursuing your dream and, you know, this this journalism thing. And, like, honestly, you inspired me. Like, I've been wanting to talk a bit more about baseball uh, with, like, with black people um, across, the, across anywhere, honestly. And I, I really – Appreciate you giving me the chance to discuss with you, you know, kind of talk about my family and, and and how, you know, we kind of are a little bit a part of baseball history and things like that. So I appreciate you giving me this opportunity. All right, man. Thank you. You have a good one, man. You too.